0: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O and Linkshare.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi Ben.
1: Hey Bernard, how are you?
0: I'm well. How are you doing?
1: Doing pretty good. Hoping to slow down a little bit for the holidays, but still seems pretty busy here in the valley.
0: It's 9 a.m. now in San Francisco time, right?
1: Yeah, 9.15-ish.
0: Yes, it's sometime about 1 a.m. here over in Singapore. But who am I talking to? One of our recurring guests, Ben Beharin from Creative Strategies and Pinions. How have things been in tech opinions? I think you're still writing a lot of articles. I think there's been a lot of discussion, not just about the US tech, but also Asia tech as well.
1: Yeah, we've started to look a little bit more at Asia. I have a a friend of mine who's been in the hardware consulting business for a really long time uh, named Phil Baker, who's really been involved with a lot of different companies, helping them do manufacturing in China. So he knows it really well. He's started contributing the past. I think month, maybe two months on some very specific China, some Shenzhen looks, a little bit dynamics about what's going on in hardware. And, and that's been interesting because we've woven in a lot of the China-centric content there. But I, I, you know China is one of the primary markets that I study from a consumer tech standpoint, with India being another one outside of the U.S. So I try to balance my content for how much I'm writing about both those markets as well. But yeah, we've definitely continued to write a bit more and, and cup, taken a couple of unique angles on what the China tech landscape looks like.
0: It's getting very interesting because of all these hardware consumer electronics that's coming out from the Shenzhen market. However, today we are talking about a very interesting topic. I know it's something that's personal to you, which is semiconductor industries from the global, I think, on some sense, Asia is kind of a very major market where where these semiconductors are manufactured, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. A, a lot in Taiwan, actually. China, mainland China, has never been the largest hub for you know actual manufacturing. There's some memory there, but you know TSMC is in Taiwan, and and, and global foundries is in Asia also. So a, a good portion of the, in this case, the ARM ecosystem, right? A lot of Intel's chips are still manufactured in the in the United States, and some in some smaller emerging markets. It's, it's certainly become a bigger hobby, but but obviously when most of the stuff is made, you know, in China, people are shipping their semiconductor units to China to be built and, and assembled and manufactured. It's certainly becoming a bigger storyline, and then obviously with with China wanting to control more of their. Semiconductor fate, and you know I think they pledged to spend something around a hundred billion dollars on semiconductor specific initiatives in 2015. and I think that'll get even bigger in 2016. there's There's some really interesting dynamics happening in the mainland china market for for semiconductors as well.
0: So the thing about the semiconductors industry, I mean, remember the days when I'm still in university, that's probably about 20 years ago, we talk about things like VLSI, ULSI architectures. How do we define the semiconductors in today's context with reference to, say, personal computers, mobility with smartphones and tablets and also Internet of Things?
1: Well, you know, it's, we're still having an architecture discussion. I mean, you know, when, when you think about, you know, the vast majority of server chips and chips and notebooks and PCs that sell, sold are on x86 architecture, which is Intel's architecture. AMD also makes some x86 architecture stuff, but Intel's the vast majority of those shipments. And then on the other side, we talk about the ARM architecture, which is a little bit more nuanced and diverse than x86. You know, only Intel and R and AMD can make x86. Based chipsets, whereas you can have lots and lots and lots of different people making ARM-based chipsets. And then there's some companies within there who actually design their own chipsets, like Qualcomm and Apple, Samsung, now Huawei from China, Broadcom, Nvidia. There's there's a, there's a list of folks who actually design their own chips. And then there's companies like MediaTek and Spreadtrum and a range of others who don't design but still manufacture and put together some of the co- core components of arm designs and, and sell those products as well TI is another another company in that in that bucket so we still talk about architecture that's again that's CPU architecture how you roll in the GPU and then importantly right a, a, the part of the conversation happening around IOT are the sensors. So there's the things that are actually connecting these bits together. And so while we still think about it as architectures, what's interesting is in all these these categories that we talk about from PCs to smartphones to tablets and now smart wearables, smartwatches, IoT, etc., what we're seeing is more... Consolidation in the semiconductor space. This is why you know you see somebody like Broadcom and Avago basically merge. You see NXP and Freescale basically merge and get bought, in, and you're going to continue to see a range of of consolidation in this space, and that's because. People who make these products just want to go to one source to get as many of the core components as they can, from CPU to sometimes memory to the underlying sensors or connectivity bits. It's just easier from a time-to-market standpoint and oftentimes from an economic standpoint to just go to one vendor and to get all of the things that you need. And so we're seeing this consolidation happen so um, so it makes it really easy for people to get the the components they need without having to go to four or five different sources. So while we, while we think about it in terms of architectures, what we're now moving toward is a much more system on a chip, which is a solutions-based approach. So more and more things coming onto one central unit or one piece of silicon. And we're seeing that now become kind of this broad trend. So we talk about the SOC. And the consolidation of chipsets or semiconductor components onto that one SOC as a kind of the bigger trend, whether it's on Intel or X- x86 or whether it's on ARM is kind of irrelevant at this point. But at the same time, what is what matters is that all of this is consolidation
0: into a single solution does the consolidation also consolidate the architectures as well
1: um it doesn't right now i mean you know we're not seeing arm based you know pcs for example in, ship in any real real significant volume there's obviously a lot of arm tablets that that get sold we're also not seeing much at all by the in in the way of of arm in the enterprise and then at the same time we're not seeing much of intel x86 in smartphones or tablets or iot yet in any ma- major uh, major volume so We don't really see that happening. I I think the point of the architecture discussion can get a little bit moot because it's it's almost where some of the underlying trends within semiconductors more toward nanometer process now than or process technology than just architectures. So, you know, Intel's on 14 nanometer, Samsung's on 14 nanometer, TSMC is on 16, Global Foundries is, is eking closer to 16. So we've got people on cutting edge process technology, which again, following Moore's law means that they can pack more transistors at an economically viable price point, and in essence, increase both performance and lower the cost is, is the fundamentals of Moore's law. And so we're seeing that now into these latest generation process nodes. And whether that's, you know, Intel at 14 and beyond or Samsung or whoever, the point is, is that we're seeing cutting edge process technology and companies able to use that technology to bring greater performance, lower economics, sometimes more efficient battery life and and some of the things that come along that that curve. And so now I'm starting to talk a little bit less about who cares if, if Intel's in this one or ARM's in that one. It's more about You know what process are we on? Are we moving the whole industry forward by bringing new process technology to market and getting the real benefits of Moore's law? Because obviously, you know, I I use this example in wearables. You know, today something like a Fitbit or even an Apple Watch is is a computer, but not really a a supercomputer. And eventually. Something like the Apple Watch will have a billion transistors in it, and so I always ask the question: You know, well, what what would you be able to do with a billion transistors on your wrist, right? My, if you have one of the latest iPhones, you have somewhere north of four billion, if not five billion transistors in that product, and it's capable of an awful lot. Once we start thinking about you know billions of transistors in you know not just the things that we use as personal computers, but you know watches, even your your, fr- your refrigerator or you know whatever your thermostat. You know, maybe you don't need a billion transistors in your thermostat. But the point is, you're going to have a lot of computing power. And and we're increasingly moving in that direction, where all of these things that we're connecting and putting a CPU in from a solution standpoint, are capable of more compute. And That makes for an interesting future because we're bringing, you know, we're advancing the computing capabilities of lots and lots of different stuff. Cars is another example when we've got, you know, billions upon billions of transistors in our cars and they get a lot smarter, you know, that's where we see some really interesting stuff happen. So that's why I, I fundamentally break it down to something like Moore's Law, which is relatively at this point architecture independent. But what's interesting is that we're moving to a world where we're going to get an awful lot of computing power into a very, very small package, and we're going to be to stick that in all sorts of stuff.
0: I know Morse Law has just passed its 50th anniversary. I studied Morse Law when I was still in university in material science. Can you give an introduction to Morse Law and will it still continue to dominate how semiconductors affect businesses out there?
1: Sure. You know, when Moore's Law was first established, it's always interesting when you, you know, I I participated in a lot of Intel's 50th anniversary events. And, you know, there was all these videos. And one of the things that I was always interesting to point out is that they say, you know, this wasn't necessarily designed as a as an observation that would last really as even as long as it has. I think that Moore had said uh, something like, I don't know beyond five years, but you know, this is basically my observation. And even he was surprised it lasted as long as it has and it has but but Moore's law, fundamentally states that the number of transistors that you can put onto a die or onto a a chip will effectively double every two years he started it it was every one year then it then it moved to every two years but what a lot of people forget in that particular statement is that for moore's law to continue it also has to be done economically so a a fundamental part of the observation or 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 moore's law is that not only will we double transistors roughly every, you know, 18 to 24 months. We will also follow an economic model that lowers the cost per transistor. So those two have to go hand in hand. So one of the reasons I say that is, you know, I get this question a lot, you know, will Moore's law be around? Well, the issue is absolutely we can continue to go on a growth curve. You know, we're at 14 nanometer today, like I said, 10 nanometers the next one, 7 after that, 5 after that. Most people from Samsung to Intel and others say, look, we're pretty comfortable we can get to seven. We think so about five. Now, what they're not saying is that technologically we can't get down to five. We can absolutely get down to five technologically. Can we get so following the economic benefits that's assumed with Moore's law is the other point. Because if it's really expensive... To make a chip at five nanometer, then we're not necessarily following Moore's Law at that point. And then again, who's gonna who's gonna be able to spend that kind of money to get those computing benefits at you know at five nanometers? So what's happened now is is Intel's basically said, you know, Moore's Law is still around. We still believe we can get to 10, both from a transistor standpoint and from an economics benefit standpoint. You know, they didn't feel that they can get to seven, also following Moore's Law, but they're saying that it's basically extending. So when you know when Moore first put out the theory or the law, he he said a year, then he extended it to you know two years, roughly 18, 24 months. Now Intel saying it's going to take us about two and a half years to do this to get to next process node and to get so economically, and so it's it's extending a little bit. I don't think that that necessarily says hey the law's dead, it's over. I mean a lot of people say it's going to be hard to carry it past twenty twenty-five. And that's fine. You know, maybe people have said, you know, Moore's law will end two or three times before, at least two. Intel and others have created new process technology or techniques from, you know, whether it's uh, what they've done in FinFETs, which is where we're at today, whether it's making the transistors longer or shortening the gap. These are exceptionally hard problems to solve. And that's, again, why... You have to be able to do so economically, or Moore's law would just continue to slow down. And so that's that's kind of the overarching overview and, and point of what's happening. But like I said, I think you know we can't just say, "Hey, Moore's law's over." It's not a technical thing. It has to, for Moore's law to continue, it has to continue to also be economic, to follow the economic curves as well, not just the technical transistor curves in terms of doubling.
0: I was in a Makers event early this year when Bunny Huang, one of my guests, who is a well-known hardware hacker from MIT, was talking about a post Moore's Laws world where the architectures are more or less defined. I think what what is going to happen is that people will have this capability of actually mix and match parts and the time horizon for each consumer electronics actually get longer and you can actually replace parts because of this post Moore's Laws world. Do you see that that is going to happen?
1: Yeah, I've heard this before from, you know, the maker community. It's one that the maker community wants to have because they do want all of the components to be modular. There's still some mass manufacturing challenges with that and again, my point about right now what we're seeing is just is the opposite of that. We're seeing people want to go to one source, not not many sources to build these components just because they want time to market and because the economic benefits to just going to one source to get all of the things that you need from connectivity to baseband to memory and cpu gpu etc is, is there's just a, there's cost effective reasons to do so so you know the consolidation is happening i think for a very specific reason you, you could get to a point where yeah you know you've got all these different components and it can work in a modular world where it's kind of like a lego i mean we've seen we've seen visions of that before that that would be much farther off than I think anything any of us can see right now. I think for the for the foreseeable 5 certainly five years if not ten year future we're still going to continue to see this consolidation around the soc just because again it lets us make really small things with a lot of performance beyond that it's kind of hard to say but for the next five certainly ten years i think we're going to have an environment similar to what we have now if if not again more consolidation but again the fundamental underlying, underlying point being we're going to bring a lot of computing and a lot of connectivity at cost effective price points to almost everything. And that's why the IoT story is interesting. You say look I'm going to be able to connect, you know, today we talk about connected lights and connected thermostats and you know inch things like that. We're going to be, you know, talking about connected everything will get connected. Even things that don't plug in get connected. And we'll have to work out the reasons that that's valuable, but the bottom line is that's going to be possible and seems inevitable at this point.
0: Cisco is predicting like 50 billion devices by the end of 2020. That, that's probably what's going to happen with this, what you're talking about now, right?
1: Yeah, and that's, again, right, I think that's a relatively conservative forecast. Just when you think about how many billions of things get sold every year, how many get left in the market, we're talking about a lot, a lot of products that get connected. But again, it's, it's all a matter of price. If it costs an extra $1,000 to have a connected oven, right, that's not going to happen. But if by default, any oven you buy from $400, you know, and, and, and up is, it has connectivity in it. These things just scale at, at, at massive levels. Um, you know, you go every year when I go to CES, like I'm, you know, like I will in less than a month, you know, you just see how many other things get connected from beds to shoes, to soccer balls, to baseball bats, to golf clubs. I mean, you name it, right? Everything's starting to become connected and it's because of that dynamic which i said and and the point being that over the course of the next 4 to 5 years those things will get more powerful and have longer battery life and when that happens you know it's a very very interesting set of dynamics so i always look at that number and i say 50 billion it seems big right but at the same time it might actually be conservative based on this this ramp that we're on.
0: I thought I should just make a side mention on Moore's law that's actually happening also in biology. I mean, to sequence the first human genome took us a billion dollars and in the last decade, it's actually dropped down to almost 10 to the power of 4. It's actually Moore's law in exponential. I don't know, at some point, biology and semiconductors are going to converge at some point. So I think Moore's law's relevance will probably be quite extensive not just to semiconductors but to any other areas. But coming back, there is something about semiconductors industries. I think there is this thing about differences and relationships between various stakeholders. For example, you have fabless manufacturers, foundries, you have integrated device manufacturers, how do you distinguish these different players within the semiconductor industry?
1: Well, I think there's the, the biggest way, again, that, that I sort of look at this is, is by process technology. You know, I think we have a lot of foundries that make anything from chipsets to microcontrollers to memory. People make different stuff in their foundries. You know, you've got Intel is an interesting one because they're, they're vertical, right? So not only do they design the architecture they're in control of the architecture in this case x86 but they actually own the f- most of the factory so most of intel's chips are made in their factory that's that's really not the case for pretty much everybody else apple while you know they design their own chips in-house, they might go to Samsung or TSMC and those companies make them. Qualcomm designs their own chips, goes to TSMC, makes them. Broadcom, similarly, at, at, at Global Foundries and a range of other sources, NVIDIA, right? all these people, they make their chips are made somewhere else. And so those are the you know Global Foundries, TSMC, these are the semiconductor either fabs or foundries, depending on, on who they are. But they each, again, they're each at a different process technology. And again, right, CPUs are made a little bit differently than than memory chips. And so everybody, some people do memory, some people do CPUs, some people do other bits of the silicon. But the bottom line is they're all, when we're talking primarily about the heart of the machine the CPU the brains there's only a handful of companies who who make those chips those that print those chips in their in their foundries and and so with them I focus a lot more on those companies than I do those who do memory or or, or isolated bits of componentry with them I again I, I distill it down to to process technology and then in some cases architecture because global foundries does some the x86 stuff for AMD but I look at again I at, at, at process technology you know who has leading edge nodes it's been Intel for a long time and Samsung's starting to enter that conversation. Who does leading edge nodes so that someone who designs or ARM in general who creates the the generic spec for for ARM cores can have these machines made. But again, the the process technology is actually a point about Moore's Law. And so I look at what process tech, how long somebody is away from the next process node, the economics of that, who their customers are. So when it comes down to those guys, I focus a little bit more on the process tech than necessarily the architecture, or again, kind of what the subcomponents that that particular foundry or fab is printing.
0: So how does this affect upstream towards some company like Apple or Samsung making devices from working with these kind of chip companies I know that there's some very interesting dynamics between foundries and companies like Apple
1: yeah I mean so it's you know news broke that I, I guess this this story alone is is interesting to, to sort of pick apart but you know news broke that Apple is dual sourcing the a9 and the iPhone between Samsung and TSMC Samsung is like I said is on a 14 nanometer FinFET this is their first generation of this particular product and TSMC is on a 16 nanometer FinFET so the dual Sourcing was interesting because essentially Apple was actually did some pretty interesting and difficult design work to make sure that their this similar architecture that they designed for the A9 could actually go onto both the 14 and the 16 nanometer process. So once, you know, 14 nanometers smaller, 16 nanometers still small, but but a little bit bigger. But essentially, that their design would scale between those two sizes. Most people don't do that. Again, it's it's, it's really hard. And, and essentially, you're actually giving up some performance by doing that. And I think Apple wanted to make sure that TSMC had some of their business. I think Apple is is vested to make sure TSMC can get to the next process node, which which will be 10 nanometer. Samsung has already said they're trying to sample at 10. Obviously, Apple wants to be on the cutting edge process technology for, for the benefits of both economics, overall performance in terms of compute, cycles but then also lower power power draw as well. So I think it's interesting that you know Apple was was sort of giving TSMC some love so that they had some some of their dollars to be committed to next generation process technology. But in the case of you know again both Samsung now and TSMC what's interesting is you know they're both competing for essentially Apple's business but when I look at this market when I look at who can afford a chipset that's going to cost a little bit more to at the next process node. It's really down to Apple, and so even if TSMC gets to ten nanometer for their next chip, and and there's been some speculations that Apple said, you know, if you do, I'll, I'll, I'll we'll primarily be your customer. They're pretty much Apple's. I mean, Apple is their only customer. You know, Samsung's not going them, going there, and other vendors just can't afford. You know, they don't sell phones at a high enough ASP to afford the cutting edge tech. And so it's interesting Apple's implications on the supply chain when they are the only premium customer for a lot of these companies who are trying to invest in cutting-edge technology and premium components, and in this case a, a cutting-edge semiconductor on the next generation process would be that. And so you're seeing these supply chain dynamics play out now really, really interestingly, while at the same time you, know, you look at Intel and say, and, and this, this gets jumped around speculated all the time, as to why is Intel not trying to transition some of their factories that are not at full capacity to start manufacturing chips for someone like Apple or even someone like Qualcomm who's constantly kind of running up against the supply chain limits of having enough capacity at one of their partner fabs, whether that's TSMC or others, because maybe they're prioritizing Apple or maybe they're prioritizing Samsung in some way or something else. And then some of those things lead to delays in their product design. So Intel has all these factories that are are sort of just sitting there not at full capacity some are almost almost empty and and they just need to have those things running and it makes sense that that people would say hey look you know apple or intel should start making arm chips for other people but we haven't really seen that happen outside of a couple of very custom projects that intel has done so the dynamics of this are interesting And, and again i make this point to say that there are only a handful of companies who actually have the capacity to Manufacture all of the chips in the world that we need. You know, it's TSMC, it's Global Foundries, it's Samsung, and it's Intel, really. And 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 that that list gets even smaller as to who can carry Moore's law beyond past 10 nanometer at at both a technology and an economics level. So if you start sort of dwindling that down, things start to get really interesting in the semiconductor industry because we have more demand, more and will will arguably have more demand than ever in around who needs and wants these semiconductors to sh- put in, you know, tens of billions of devices every year and we're having a smaller number of people who really can do that, who have the capacity to manufacture these chips. So in the Arm world, whether that's at TSMC, even at Samsung, to some degree, global foundries. You know, for the most part, these fabs are all full today, cranking on all cylinders. And, and we're talking about a, a future of the next five to ten years of an increase in demand in semiconductors, which means we have to somehow increase capacity. And Moore's law can kind of do that because we can pack more onto a wafer, uh, more more chips onto a wafer. But I see this as an interesting problem because the demand for silicon is going up while at the same time there's really only a handful of people with capacity and capacity is strained today. So I, I'm curious to see how this how this works itself out. But Apple's playing a big role in helping these companies move to next generation process tests, which is actually pretty important for the rest of the industry who will benefit from those cycles later on as well.
0: So does the industry overall collaborate on the chip making process itself?
1: I mean, they, they don't collaborate because again, you know, Samsung's for, Samsung's process technology is their own proprietary process technology. So, so they have the way in which they get to 14 nanometer all of the quantum physics involved with that that's their own that's their own proprietary process it's the same with TSMC it's the same with global foundries you know even intel it's proprietary process technology so there's not really much collaboration now there's there's a common set of people who sell the materials to print these wafers. And we can always sort of get a handle on who those are or, or how much volume there is in Semi just based on kind of the orders of these machines that are getting placed. But yeah, there's there's not much sort of, I mean, there's more much more competition, I guess I should say, than there is collaboration, at least amongst those those few that I've mentioned so far.
0: So what are some of the examples of these interesting chip architectures? And are they very important in the role of software, particularly in the battery management part?
1: Well, the process tech, you know, again, the assumption that we move from, the, the, even that we've gone down the chain that we have, right, from 21 to to low, tw- I mean, sorry, from 28 nanometer to, to 21, 22, down 16, 14, right, all these numbers th- that I'm using is is, is carried in that assumption or or contains that assumption that we're getting better power, better battery management, right? So the devices itself does not draw as much power from a watt standpoint. So the, the industry term for this is performance per watt. You get more performance, more efficient use per watt. So this is why, you know, we can ship or Apple can ship a fairly powerful you know 5 billion dual core 6 to 12 core GPU and and draw less than 5 watts of, of, of power in it similar with a lot of intels devices you're going to see on their newest architecture next year very powerful CPUs you know drawing 3 to 4 3 to 4 watts of power so so very low so that's the that's that's good for battery life if someone says you know, I've got massive power performance per watt, and I can deliver, you know, X amount of computing power sub one watt. Now we're talking, right? So that's kind of the let's get beyond below one watt. So interestingly, all of these companies are moving in that direction. So that's the reason we want to get to, to 10 nanometer to 10 nanometer and beyond. But the architecture itself, again, you know, Apple is interesting. And, and I think there's some dynamics, right? So people, I think, tend to not understand the dynamic of the ARM ecosystem. So there are people who are called ARM architectural licensees so those are people again like apple like qualcomm like nvidia like broadcom huawei is now one samsung is also now one Um, these are people who license the arm instruction set and then design their own cores. so they're designing their own architectures just using the ARM instruction set. Then there are people like MediaTek and, and TI and others who aren't architectural licensees. They don't license the instruction set, they, also, they license the cores. So they license the ARM technology, and then they take that and say, hey, I've, I've, I've licensed the ARM core, and I'm going to slap four of those cores onto one die and then sell that as a four core, or sell that as an eight core, and do some power management, do some unique sauce around there. But they're not they're not really designing that core. That's ARM's core. Whereas in the case of Qualcomm's new cryo architecture, Sinos from Qualcomm, even, and then obviously the, the A-series processors from Apple, those are those are their own cores. Those aren't ARM cores. Those are those are ARM instruction sets, but they designed those cores. So I make this point because each person kind of handles this differently. So folks in Asia and folks in India, you know, might be well aware that you know, Media Tech and, and even Qualcomm to some degree, but others. They tout these eight-core designs, right? And when you do a performance check between an eight-core processor from MediaTek or even you know, one of the ones from Qualcomm that's not Qualcomm's proprietary process, I know that's confusing. It's a whole other explanation as to why Qualcomm has some chips that are not their own design and some chips that are their own design. But if you just take a MediaTek eight-core processor and put it up against a dual-core processor of Apple, um, Apple will beat it. And so you say, well, why? Why does that, how could a device with two cores Outperform one with eight cores, and and more importantly, perhaps even do so with less power. The answer is because they designed a really good core, and so architecture design is huge. Architecture design is is very very important in my opinion. And again, there's only a handful of companies who have the technical know-how to do architecture design. And so, if you design a great chip, it can be very powerful, and it can also be very performance centric in terms of power. So you could get a lot of power at or lot of performance at very low power. And so that's where what's most interesting to me is those who are designing their own chips, because I think they're doing some of the best semiconductor work out there against Qualcomm, Broadcom, NVIDIA, Apple, jury's out on Samsung if they can do a good job. And now Huawei is going to start to as well. And we're unsure about what their architecture looks like. But those, those are the most interesting companies to me because they're able to design stuff and, and do so really well to get the most performance at the at and yield the lowest power. So in terms of battery life, and that to me is is very interesting from a personal computing standpoint.
0: So it's almost like what Mark Andreessen says: "Software is eating the world." semiconductors are also eating the world, right?
1: Yeah, the observation I always like to throw into that is, you know, Mark's observation is great, and it's wonderful. The problem is semiconductors have to eat the world before software can.
0: (laughs) I guess when we think about semiconductors, I think you mentioned Intel, ARM, NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Samsung, TSMC, MediaTek. I mean, who are the main global players and who are the Asian players, is it very difficult for new entrants to enter into the industry?
1: No, I mean, that's, so that's what makes this interesting, right? MediaTek and, you know, even Spreadrum from a CPU slash modem standpoint are, you know, have been relatively new. I mean, MediaTek used to, you know, do core, core, uh chipsets in DVD players, but they, you know, started to get into more mobile devices as well. And they're relatively new. The, the point of this is ARM actually makes it very easy. I'm not gonna say easy, but easier. ARM makes it easier for almost anyone to to get into this the semiconductor making industry. It's it's just it's typically it's it's hard. It's very capital intensive, so you do have to have an influx of capital. In fact, there's a company that folks in uh, in Asia might be might be well aware of called Allwinner. You know, Allwinner came out of nowhere, capitalized on an ARM license and started selling componentry in terms of their their chipsets, a great power management controller, a PMIC integrated all those together, sold a board, and brought you know low-cost tablets to market in a range of two weeks. I mean I met with them at CES two years ago and they're like, yeah, we can we can help anyone get to market with a tablet in two weeks. You know, I'm thinking two weeks, you know, this is this is crazy. But they built that on the back of just having an ARM license and 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 making these chips and doing a little bit of design and and going out the market and capitalized on that low cut co- that low cost tablet. I mean, there was a time where you know allwinner was outside of Apple the number one SOC provider, shipment vendor provider for tablets. I'm not sure if they are are currently because we don't hear much from them. But but they capitalized on the big growth trend of of tablets and they got into that market really quickly. They were nobody. All of a sudden, they were up there in terms of one of the market leaders and share of tablet sales from a chipset standpoint. So ARM makes it actually very easy for these companies to do this. In fact, in Arm, has I don't remember when they did this but they now have and are increasing their offices in China in order to continue to cater to the Chinese ecosystem and try to get more people to get on the arm architecture or get acquire an arm license. So they are extremely aggressive in China hoping to kind of get many of these new companies like like Allwinner to start taking an arm license and starting to ship or even to some cases just manufacture their own their their own arm cores for any range of things, right? Robotics, drones, IoT, automotive, right? You name it. So ARM actually lowers that barrier, even though it's a capital-intensive barrier, it's not an IP barrier. You can get the IP you need from ARM, and as long as you've got enough money, you know, you can get into the semiconductor business. Now the design is very different, right? It's much more difficult to design a core of any type of quality. And that's why there's, there's there's less than 15 companies who have an architecture license to go and do that. So there's nuances within, you know, within how quickly you could get to do this. But but again, the point is that Arm is actually trying to to do what they can to make it easier for people to get the IP, just put some money in and essentially start getting into the semiconductor business.
0: It's almost like Arm is like a Apple App Store or Google Play Store where they actually allow itself as a platform but on the semiconductor to create new entrants into the industry.
1: Yeah, that's right. And what's interesting is Arm is even somewhat, you know, disruptive. You know, if you think about just just how easy it is for MediaTek, right, just as an example, to to take a an Arm core, you know, make four of them, make eight of them, perhaps put a dozen cores on there someday, I don't know, right? But but essentially compete with Qualcomm who spends billions of dollars per year trying to design their own core. And essentially the gap between Qualcomm custom designed core And a MediaTek, just generic licensed cores, is slowly starting to shrink. And I think that's interesting because ARM is also, while an enabler, it's actually potentially disruptive in in the sense that you know, it allows somebody to come in and compete with a very big entrenched vendor like Qualcomm and actually have some success. And so this is between media, when I look at just kind of ARM and mobile, in particular, MediaTek and Qualcomm are kind of the two that there's a battle emerging with. And it's interesting to see, it's really interesting to see how those two compete, but again, at very different levels since Samsung or since Qualcomm is designing cores and MediaTek is not.
0: I read this article you've written in TechPinions, if designing semiconductors were easy everyone would do it and i think you're referencing to apple and huawei but also i think to some extent because rumors is that google is also looking into the hardware side of it what is the context behind that
1: so again it goes back to the point you know that i made that just to have a team of people who can just genuinely design a great architecture a great chipset is really really hard you know i i think I was having this conversation at a with, with some uh, investor friends of mine a couple of days ago, you know, and, and one of the points came out that said, you know, for every 10 we, we, this point we have in the valley is that good software engineers are hard to find, right? So so the guy made the point but you know what was interesting is that for every 10,000 amazing software engineers there's one really good semiconductor engineer or designer. So it's it's an exceptionally rare talent. And that's why when you you know you see all the moves that Apple makes to basically go and poach some of the best semiconductor designers from big companies like AMD, like TI, you know even Broadcom or Nvidia or things like that, like they're building the be- one of the best teams on the planet to design their own semiconductors. Qualcomm has really good designers. Intel has good designers. And so I make that point to say it's not like somebody just wakes up one day and says, "Hey, I'm going to design my own silicon." Like you have to you have to go find these people and these people. Are not just sitting on the couch. They're they're at very big companies working on really interesting things. So where are you going to poach them from? Right is the question. So when I look at Google, you know, you say, okay, Google's saying, look, we want to design chips. I've heard the same thing from Facebook. Heard similar things, rumors around Microsoft. There's all these companies who want to design their own semiconductors. And so the question I always ask is, well, where are you going to get these people? Because they already have jobs. You're going to have to find them from one of very small places, right? Either Qualcomm, Intel, to some degree, AMD as well has some really great designers, or Apple. And so you got to go find these people. And that's, that's part of the, the hard process is that you can get an ARM architectural licensee. So Samsung's a good example of this. Samsung has an architectural, Huawei as well. Both these companies have architectural licenses from ARM. Both of them are basically on the path to design their own chips. Now, we'll see when these chips come out, you'll be able to benchmark them against a the Qualcomm or against Apple and see how they stack up. But that's the real question is, can these companies design something of quality? And like I said, that's, that's just really hard. And the talent needed to do that is exceptionally rare. And you put those dynamics together and you know it's sort of the point that I made is that it, it's so hard, but it's so important. it's so strategic for these companies' futures to be able to have, a custom designed piece of silicon that does everything that they want it to do and that's what makes I think Apple's investment in this so interesting in fact I've been I'm, I'm going to write about this at some point but I, I really believe that you know in 10 years or longer at whatever point in time we we do some some broader reflection of the run that that Apple's been on you know we're going to make an observation that, that their investment to design their own semiconductors was one of the most strategically brilliant moves that that company ever did and I don't know who's responsible for it but I, I'm convinced it will come down as to one of the most strategically important things they did
0: so as semiconductors shift from u.s to china is it going to be increasingly difficult for u.s to build their own consumer products
1: you mean manufacture their yeah, own that's a, right. i mean i, I think that shift's probably already sailed honestly you know i mean i'll just give you an example take this hoverboard narrative right that's coming out and, and i understand some of these are catching on fire and that's not that's not great but this is interesting because at ces i, I spent time with this company well sorry a number of these companies making these boards and and then they told me you know they were going to be, eight hundred, sometimes a thousand dollars. I'm thinking these are cool, but not for a thousand dollars. And now, fast forward, you know, roughly twelve months, and we've got some of these, you know, in the three hundred dollars. Right? They may catch on fire, but but again, right, three hundred dollars. Th- those problems will solve itself. By the way, these these things that, that the bad quality of the battery to catch on fire. The bottom line is next year, one of these hoverboards today. That Razor or others are are launching at five or six hundred dollars will be two hundred dollars, right? Two or three hundred dollars. And they'll be really good. And and that's a bunch of sophisticated technology to pull that off. And I think BuzzFeed did a story, I, I can't remember what it's called, but they did a feature on the factories that are making these hoverboards. And you know, when I read that and, and just the times I've been to Shenzhen, you know, you, what, what's a, what's remarkable is just the quality. Of the goods of, and the sophistication of those things, and more importantly, their ability to drive scale and get costs down. Just, we're never going to be able to do that in this country. And, you know, we might we might make some cars. China might make a lot of cars, and 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 the underlying components to do fully self driving cars and autonomous, and bring those costs down. But the bottom line is it's going to be really hard. And and I'm just becoming increasingly convinced it's really hard for U.S. companies to do this. China just has the scale and the economics to pull it off, and and really no other country does. I I think that this ship, for the most part, has sailed. And now, you know, you look at the hardware landscape there, particularly in Shenzhen, you've got pretty much people doing hardware design, even if they're U.S.-based companies. They all go live in Shenzhen for two three four months, however long it takes for them to to work on their next hardware part for the per for the main point that while they're there they could run through four or five prototypes in a day being there on their designs and, and that type of scale and rapid quickness in terms of scale and development is essential when you do this and that's never going to happen here
0: You have actually made this very interesting point in fact I think I cited this article that you wrote a couple of times when talking to, my other guests on China. So the Chinese hardware manufacturers have been designing their products for the one billion population. So if you think in terms of mobile phones, is the future of consumer hardware belongs to the Chinese because from their one billion, they can go out and take on the other few billion from the emerging markets.
1: That's right. You know, and and it's it's interesting. And one of the other is I'm giving giving your listeners all my my teasers. The other thing I'm going to write. Is basically a a story explaining why a lot of the dynamics around the the Japanese consumer tech companies of the past, you know, decade, right? So Sony, Sharp, you know, those guys, Fujitsu. A lot of those Japanese consumer tech companies. The parallels to what the Chinese are doing right now are, are fascinating. There's a lot of parallels. So I've, I similar, I make the analogy frequently that that I, that the China tech companies that I'm seeing are basically playing the role in the next twenty, you know, twenty years that the Japanese consumer tech companies did the previous 20 years. And a lot of that just has to do with that point, which is they have nailed uh, manufacturing quality, scale, and price because the market for China is so big. It's you know If you can scale in China, you can scale anywhere, and that's really hard. So they're learning those lessons, they're perfecting those skills, and they can do so now at cost-effective price points and start to go global and that's we've never really seen anything like this before and so when i talk about the future of consumer electronics broadly again this hoverboard is just a great example because we didn't we didn't really see this category coming and and while it might be a fad the point is another one will come or another two or another five and but it's going to come from china and it's because they've got the scale there to bring those costs down like i said if you can scale in china you can scale pretty much anywhere you just don't find those skills everywhere you just you just don't find that unique environment anywhere and, and that's why you know I put a lot of emphasis on the chinese brands huawei you know throw xiaomi in there and i think others will come Th- those companies who can establish themselves as global brands will do profound things in the next 20 years of consumer tech in in a similar vein to what the japanese companies did in the past 20 decades now the chinese companies need to figure out branding especially if they're going to try to come to this country but those were all struggles the japanese companies had as well and they did figure those out so we'll see how it goes but i see a lot of parallels between the japanese consumer tech companies of the past 20 years to the chinese consumer tech companies of the next 20 years
0: i just have one last question on this topic samsung has been making a lot of inroads in semiconductors as compared to their disastrous smartphone launches is their future in semiconductors
1: i believe so yes i think i wrote this for our subscribers somewhere earlier this year you know, where I basically said Samsung's real target is Intel, not Apple. You know, I mean, the foundries that they're building in South Korea and even the one they have in Austin that's making a lot of uh, Apple's products, I mean, these are gigantic foundries. You know, the one that they are building in in South Korea, if I recall, was something like six football fields or something like that. Uh, that's, that's a big factory. So they're signaling their intent to manufacture a lot of chips. And, you know, like I said, I, it, right now, I'm pretty sure Samsung and Intel will get to 10 nanometer. I, I have a sense that they both might get to seven. But if, but if they're the only two companies who get past 10 nanometer, seven nanometer, I mean, that's a pretty big feat and, and a very dominant position. So the point I make is, you know, people tend to think, you know, Samsung's really competing with Apple. But in reality, I think they're putting the pieces together to compete with Intel. And if you just look at their their breakdown their financial breakdowns the past couple of the past year really you know the semiconductor side of their industry which is broken out as SEC but the the electronics side the semiconductor and component side is just continuing to increase in their overall revenue whereas the mobile side is continuing to shrink so i think the their paper the paper trail backs this point out that they're essentially not just becoming a components company, they're essentially also very quickly becoming a semiconductor company.
0: I thought I should just ask you this because you have just Finish the Glance conference. I know you organized it together with Horace Dedu. I wanted to ask you: is, is something about the Apple Watch? So, what what have we learned about the Apple Watch so far from the Glance conference?
1: So, yeah, I mean, we put on Glance, and so this was me and uh, and and Horace Dedu of of Asimco and, uh, and one of the folks I do some research with on the Apple Watch from Risley, and and our goal was to sort of take a take a look at this product and say, you know, ask a couple of questions. You know, number one, what does this this product represents in terms of a p- a potential paradigm in computing shift right so you know i started the conference off and i said you know look is is the future of computing humans staring at screens for long periods of time or is the future of computing that those screens kind of disappear and become embedded in smaller objects and we still interact with the digital world, but we don't necessarily have to stare at a screen all day to do that. We might talk to it, it might talk back to us, you know, however we get the information. And so that was kind of how I phrased it and structured it from the beginning. And we, we had a lot of really great speakers come through. We had. Uh Horace and I gave a talk just sharing kind of our data. We shared some of the Risley data. We had panels on next generation user interface and design. We had people talk about what it takes to do new input mechanisms. We actually had a couple of developers come and just show what's working, what's not working, what they've learned. So it was it was very interesting. I think, you know, what's challenging with this product and and we had a researcher come and basically say the the average interact interaction on a smartphone is is something like 37 seconds whereas the average interaction on a smartwatch is 0.7 seconds now when we're talking about that dramatic time difference in an interaction with a product it becomes very clear that, that this is something that's not just new, but it has to. you have to completely rethink how you think about your software, how you think about design, how you think about that you interact with this particular product. And that was one of the things that became strikingly clear, is that most people just continue to use a smartphone-based paradigm when they think about the watch, when it's something dramatically different. And so we didn't really make a lot of progress in saying, hey, is this the next platform or paradigm shift in computing? It certainly could be or it might not be, or it might be a stepping stone to whatever the next paradigm shift in computing is beyond mobile. We just don't know yet. Uh, What was encouraging for the conference was, was just talking about how people are really starting to rethink their software, their user interface, and their paradigms for how you interact with their app or how you interact with the cloud. And like I said, that's interesting to me because to be honest with you, you know, I don't want to have to stare at a screen all day if I don't have to. I, that's the workflow that exists today. I'm not sure that's the workflow that will exist in the future, but we have to build toward that reality. And so the whole conference was kind of just having that conversation. Where are we today? What are the challenges? What do we learn? But, but really wrap it in the big picture about where we're going. And there was a lot of optimism. I mean, from the speakers, from the university professors, we had come and talk about studies they've done on, on behavioral research, mine as well. And then even the the VCs we had and the, the investors at the end of the day, those were all all things that that uh, there's a lot of optimism and potential. But very very early stages of this, I, I constantly reiterate how early we are in this game of of not just wearables but smartwatches. But I, we walked away from the ca- from the conference really feeling like there is something here. You know, this isn't. I don't think this product is a flop. I think there's something here. I think all of the research that we're seeing says, yes, something is here. We're just not sure, right? It's an infant and I and others, even Apple today, are we're trying to figure out what it grows up to be. We don't know, but but I'm certain there's something here. And, and that's why I'm probably the, one of the most excited about this category, just because I have enough data, I've seen enough data and talked to enough people to know that there's something here. We're just not sure what, right? So it's kind of an evolving story, but but it's an exciting one, in my opinion.
0: Oh, You have to find a way to somehow open this up to the global audience like me, because I wanted to be there, but it's just too far away. But nevertheless, Ben, it's always good to have you on the show, and we will continue to talk on this. I'm sure at some point, we'll be talking about the car and how many seconds that we are going to be interacting <laughs> with the car too, right? Probably, probably. Mm. Help my audience, how do they find you, Ben?
1: Easiest way is Twitter, just because I post most of the stuff I write or, or publish and TV things I'm on, whatever, on Twitter. So at Ben Beharin, uh, my website, techpinions.com, is where a lot of my stuff is published, but it's also syndicated with Recode. If you read any of those sites, those are the, but those are the tech and Twitter are the easiest ways to keep track of me.
0: You can find me at CW or at com, or subscribe to us at AnalyzeAsia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And please leave us a comment or even, you know, tweet to me or email to me. I've been getting a lot more feedback these days from all of you and I hope to hear from all of you out there even more. Ben, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure.